So, sound? Yes. So first of all, I hope for those of you who went to Jhana Grove to see my cave, enjoyed it. That is where I live. And it may be one of the most visited bedrooms in the world. <laughs> but I make sure that I'm not in there when people visit. And I love that cave because it's quiet. And I can go in there and just be like an ordinary monk. You know, sometimes you see me open the door for you, I'll try anyway. Because I kind of rebel against being treated as if you're some celebrity. And in there I'm just an ordinary monk with a few things. Even though it's got electricity, and it's got a dehumidifier, and it's got a, um, a cork tile floor which is really comfortable, but it's still it's reasonably simple. And I love that. I'm a monk, always will be a monk, not a teacher, not a celebrity. So that's why I love that place. And hopefully you've got a lot of good energy inside there. The next thing I wanted to tell you that some people said they've seen the cave before, but they still went over to Bodhinyana Monastery uh, to sit in the main hall there. And I tell you this because uh, it's helpful for you. If you can't get nice meditation in this hall here or in your room, try Bodhinyana Monastery main hall, the Seema Hall. For some reason, I know the reasons, but for some reason that's got excellent energy. We do have some real Buddha relics in there. And we do also just lots of monks and nuns have been meditating there for, for many years over almost 35, 36 years. So that's powerful energy. And I was just telling one person, we even had a Feng Shui master come over to check it out. And they said that's got some of the strongest Feng Shui you'd ever seen, especially in the front of the hall. So if you do go over there to look at the cave, just spend an extra 10 or 15 minutes, if you can be that short, and sit there and meditate. It's much easier. It's got really good energy. This place's energy is not bad, but not the same as Bodhinyana. There are places like that. Because I just want you to have nice meditation. Places there, why not? So anyway, the Sutta class. Now, there are so many suttas, and there are so many different versions of those suttas, Suttas are the teachings of the Buddha. And what I did some years ago, I got frustrated that some of the translations were not that accurate. Of simple words, such as like samadhi. What does samadhi mean? A lot of times people said it means concentration. It does not mean that. And that's one of the most misleading terms. It was invented by Professor Rice Davids over a hundred years ago. He was the one who coined the term mindfulness. It was a good stab at trying to find out a decent English word for this word samadhi, but it doesn't really cut it these days. So having practiced myself, and you know, for many years having learned Pali, having read those suttas, and studied them, and contemplated them. 
the best rendition of the word samadhi is not concentration, but stillness. And even here, some years ago, we had this uh, Chinese professor from Stanford who just wanted to escape to a place where she would be recognized. She made me promise never to tell our local university she was here because she was quite well known in the field. I would invite her to give a lecture somewhere. And so that she came here and said, what's the big problem? You know, in the Chinese versions of the suttas, it obviously means stillness. It never means concentration. Now imagine stillness and concentration. Stillness is what happens when you let go. Remember that? Put this down and it becomes still all by itself. Concentration is when you hold something and force it to be still. You never achieve that. And I mention that out of kindness for you. I get nothing out of this because so many people fail to get joy and happiness and depth in their meditation because they're trying too hard. So instead, stillness. Restrain all these thoughts. Keep the mind in this moment. Don't talk and the thinking mind gets less and less and less. Be more of a listener than a talker. You find stillness is here. Little ways. This hall. When you come into this hall, what do you see? You see the floor, the mats, the people, the Buddha statue, the ceiling, the walls. That's only a small part of this hall. The biggest thing in this meditation hall is the space. The space above you to the ceiling. The space between you. That takes up far more volume in this hall than people and things. We tend not to see that. Just like the silence, the stillness. Stillness is there. So we learn how to recognize it. And it grows. It becomes such a wonderful resource. So anyway, I better stop doing my own commentary. <laughs> so, introduction. I have five sessions of Word of the Buddha on suttas. So this is not choosing one sutta. It's just quotes from many suttas on a theme. In other words, it gets some of the deepest of the teachings from the suttas, all word of the Buddha, and rendered to be far more powerful. Have you ever listened to some of these suttas or read them yourself and seen all the repetition? And for a lot of times that turns people off. You know, they keep on hearing the same words again and again and again and again and again, which is great for recording the teachings and making sure that they're well remembered. But when it's teaching, sometimes it doesn't cut it, especially for modern people. Too much repetition. But then again, you can't distort the Buddha's teachings. But it's pretty easy to cut out the repetition, keep the heart there, and you still manage 
to get amazing teachings, bring them to life. So anyway, uh, this was the forward to this little um, booklet. Uh, the word of the Buddha forward, the suttas. In 1907, the pioneering German-born monk, Venerable Jnana Tiloka, published the English version of the word of the Buddha. It is described as an outline of the teachings of the Buddha in the words of the Pali Canon. It consists of a selection of authentic teachings from the suttas that expound on the core Buddhist Dharma of the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Noble Eightfold Path. When I wrote this, I haven't got the date when I did this, for almost 20 years I've been using this word of the Buddha by Venerable Jnana Tiloka as a textbook to introduce my monastic students to the Buddhist suttas. Indeed, every Anagarika postulant and Samanera, that's a novice monk, must complete the course in basic Buddhist teaching before they are allowed the high ordination as a bhikkhu. I have taken such steps to establish what these days we call quality control in the monks under my training. So at the very least, they are made aware of what the Buddha really taught from the most reliable source, the Sutta. Unfortunately, there is a problem. Although the Dharma is timeless, the usual, pre the usual presentation has become as if overgrown by impenetrable thickets of tradition. I have received countless well-intended criticisms that all the repetitions are discouraging and the similes are so archaic as to be obtuse and some revered renderings of key Buddhist terms are rusted shut. This exegesis is well past its use-by date. And now I quote an ancient Chinese saying, updated to emphasize the point. Rather turn on the electric light than complain about darkness. The old saying was rather light a candle than complain about darkness. Have you heard that before? Rather light a candle than complain about darkness. Whoever lights a candle these days, rather turn on electric light than complain about darkness. So the teachings here is not another translation. It is a new type of translation. Not so much for detached scholars, but for those who immerse their whole lives in these teachings. I have followed one of the, my mentors in Pali and the suttas, Professor A.K. Warder, whose insightful advice was, it is the sentences which are the natural units of discourse. The sentences, not the words. And which are the minimum units having precise, fully articulated meaning. For purposes of study, we have to assign 
approximate meanings to words and list these in vocabularies. But these generalized meanings of words are extremely vague, whereas sentences have exact meanings. Now that's how we learn language as kids. Phrases and sentences, not words. Uh, In translation, one may find close equivalents for sentences while it is often impossible to give close equivalents for words. Thus, in order to convey the meaning, I have chosen to translate sentence for sentence, not word for word. A word has no permanent essence outside of a sentence. Uh, My authority to translate rests on my reputation as a well-known Buddhist meditation teacher trained to think in Cambridge and then trained to be silent under Ajahn Chah. Ah, no, here. And this time was 45 years as a monk, so this was written four years ago. For example, for many years I have consistently protested It's okay for a monk to protest as long as they're not violent, not upsetting other people too much. (laughs) Protested against the traditional translation of concentration for the party word samadhi, instead preferring stillness. It's not a trivial point for debate among philologists, for it cuts the very heart of the Buddhist path to freedom. Nor is my protest to serve an ego, quite the opposite. The practice of concentration and the willpower on which it depends actually reinforces the ego. On the contrary, stillness and the letting go renunciation on which it depends brings the ego to cessation. I also mentioned this is not the final version translations will always be work in progress. I only hope that this version will elucidate, inspire and challenge. Students have remarked on listening to classes based on earlier drafts of this book. It's like listening to the teachings of the suttas for the first time and their power is frightening and at the same time compelling. There's many things you will hear from me which challenge you to the core as should be the case. To teach something new is not to reassure you. Sometimes the truth will always be challenging. You remember that uh, discussion between Niels Bohr and uh, Professor Einstein. This is not a joke, this was actually happened. And talking about the new discovery of quantum mechanics. And no matter what Niels Bohr was saying, Einstein would always respond, God does not play dice. The probability theory doesn't make any sense. To him, Einstein was wrong. He was frightening him. And that's an old story. Any physicists here? Is that pretty accurate? Thank you. If you said no, I wouldn't mind. (laughs) 
very good. But that happened. It shows you that sometimes to see something new is sometimes painful, frightening. We have to go through with it. And I'm teaching you this because I, I respect you. Um, as for improvements, this is not perfect. I welcome better sentence-by-sentence sentence translations. But I say only when they arise from someone immersed in these teachings. Living renunciance for the cessation of all ego or concept of a permanent essence within and beyond or beyond the five candors. You know what the word candors mean? The five candors? The five groups of existence? What are the five candors? Rupa, that's things, not just the body, but other stuff. Vedana. What does Vedana mean? That's what many people translate it as. It's not a bad translation, but I prefer experience much more. General experience. Feelings in English can be just the emotional part of experience. Or just the pleasure-pain part. But experience itself. Sanya, perception. That was an excellent translation. I could never get better than that. Sankara. Thank you, you've listened to my teachings before. Sometimes they call volitional formations. That's a complicated term. I prefer just to go to the core of it, will. And that will change this, just... You know, when you look at that, that's the main part of Sankara will. And you read some of these t- teachings, what the Buddha said, and that's what it meant. And that makes it even, even more powerful. And uh, Vijnana, what does Vijnana mean? <laughs> You've heard my teachings before. Most people say consciousness. But I prefer being more accurate, consciousnesses. The Buddha calls six types of consciousness. They become the six consciousnesses. Sight consciousness, hearing, smell, taste, bodily touch, and mind consciousness. Totally different which is why we call it six different types of consciousnesses. And you do that, it makes it again far more powerful, as you will soon find out. So when I did the last quote, Sabbe Dhammana Lang Abhinavesanaya. That's in the Majjhima Nikaya 37. There is nothing worth keeping all dhammas, all things. Nalang abhinivesanaya. When you say letting go, it's letting go of everything. Not just most things. And I keep a little bit back for myself. I don't want much, just a tiny little bit for myself. The whole lot to be abandoned. Anyway, so what I was going to do today was talk about these, uh, the candors, the five candors.
Is that okay? If any of you don't like it, I will not get offended if you walk out. <laughs> for sometimes, for some people, you know, it's a bit too much for them. For some people, they're tired, or they just don't get it. They'd rather be doing something else. And of course, I won't mind that at all. It's, you know, sometimes when I was listening to teachings of other people, I would walk out when I was a young Buddhist. So I know what it feels like. You can't say that how you pitch a talk is for everybody. We'll just see how it goes. And any questions, you can always bring those up in the uh, quick Q&A this evening. So anyway, the, the candors. The f I usually call them the five components of existence. I do that because that seems to make sense as a translation. Khandas, the five khandas, you know, uh, sometimes they call them sometimes the five groups, skandhas, aggregates. What does aggregate mean? You know, sometimes I used to be a builder building this place and other places. An aggregate was what you ordered from the quarry. This is very fine metal, uh, stones basically, which you used to make concrete. I shoveled you know, many tons of aggregate in my life, but that doesn't mean what candors are. <laughs> so I prefer something a bit more accurate, the components, what makes up existence. And how in particular, this is uh, from the Diga Nikaya, and then it goes to the Imaginum Nikaya afterwards, and how in particular are the five components of existence suffering? How are they suffering? They are as follows. The body and stuff, experience, that's Vedana, perception, sanya, will and other mental formations, that's Sankara, and the six consciousnesses, Vijnana, these are the five components of existence that are suffering. And sometimes you see the Buddha calling, especially in Dhammachaka Sutta, the, uh, the Upadana, sometimes they say that it's the... Uh, sorry? You can call it clinging, that's fine. But there's a deeper meaning for Upadana, Sometimes they call it kandupadana, and they say that that's a suffering, as if the kandas, the five components, weren't suffering, but clinging to them is suffering. But anyway, instead of calling it clinging, upadana, upadana has another meaning, which I find far more uh, informative. Because if it's clinging, it's not just the act of clinging, What's doing the clinging, and what's it doing too? It's much better to call this the fuel, upadana. You know the word, this is not supposed to be a Pali class, but you've heard so many times the word ardana. Adin ardana, veramanisi karpadang samadhyami. Adina means not giving. Ardana means taking up. It's like the word for like stealing, taking what's not yours. That's what ardana means, taking up. 
and actually I shouldn't say taking up, it means taking. The upa, which is a prefix, means the same as in the English, up. It means literally taking up. And that taking up, a very good rendition of that, often used, is using it as fuel. What does this process called your life, how does it keep on going? A car needs some electricity or gas to keep on going. What keeps this body and mind, you going, not just in this life, but between lives and from life to life? That's this thing called upadana, the fuel. So anyway, it's the fuel. What keeps the process of candors going? The same as these five components of existence, or is the fuel something apart from these five components of existence? That fuel is neither the same as the five components of existence, this is the Buddha talking, nor is the fuel separate from the five components of existence. Was I accurate there when I said this is the Buddha talking? No, the Buddha never talked English. <laughs> and I mention that because this is one of the problems. When we have translations, we always, and I will admit this, I try not to, you will always put your preference into the translation. So whenever you hear of a translation of any teacher, Thai teachers, the Buddha, Chinese uh, masters, mistresses, I can't say mistresses, whenever you have a translation, sometimes how much is the translator and how much is the original? You always have to be careful there. I try much, because sometimes people tell me what Ajahn Chah said, and I was with him for nine years. He never said that. Or maybe you weren't there. It's not what he would say. You got to know your teacher and know how he would talk. And this was sometimes people, they, well, this is kind of what he meant. In other words, what a person says. It goes out of their mouth, through the air, into their ear hole, through their brain, and sometimes it's not exactly what they said in the first place. I think you all know that. That's you know, what we used to play at school. Please excuse me, I don't know why they said, they called it Chinese whispers. Please don't be offended because most Singaporeans are Chinese heritage. But you know the story when you pass a message down the line of school kids and see what comes out at the end. It's always very funny because it's totally different from what was said at the beginning. And the famous example of that was in the First World War where orders were given down the line from the general to the colonel to the lieutenant to the major, I've probably got it all wrong, the order, from the major to the captain, from the captain to the sergeant, from the sergeant to the lieutenant, not lieutenant, anyway. <laughs> and then eventually to the private who did the work. And the message from the general was send reinforcements we're going to advance. By the time it got to the little uh, uh, private, it was, you know the old British money? 
send three and four pence, we're going to a dance. <laughs> well, that actually happened, which was a question if you give orders down the line, you never know. If I tell Ajahn Appy, uh, can you please tell Ajahn Bramali, you know, to tell um, Venerable uh, Sadawi Hari, who was looking after the, um, uh, the Anagarikas, could you please tell him not to come to the Sutta classes in the afternoon? And then what message comes through to the Anagarikas? Yeah, <laughs> so that's why you're here today. <laughs> the character in the corner. No, you're most allowed to come, no problem at all. So this is actually why when you have translations, sometimes you've got to check what was actually said and try and be honest and explain it as it was said. And the best way you know it was said. So that fuel is neither the same as the five components of existence, nor is the fuel separate from the five components of existence. It is the desire and wanting that is part of these five components of existence. That is the fuel that sustains them. In other words, what we would say these days, you, your process, your five components of existence, self-sustain, keeps on going. The fuel is from within them and the fuel can be cut off within them too. It's not separate. Anyway, I, I say many of, those, many of these things because this is where there was many um, arguments about what these five components of existence really are. So this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Any kind of body whatever this is like a rupakanda, any kind, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle or inferior or superior, far or near. This is the body, the stuff component of existence. And all bodies should be seen as they really are with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not a permanent essence. The sutra I'm quoting from now is the Anattalakana Sutta. The second sutra taught by the Buddha which created the first five fully enlightened beings. Any kind of experience, Vedana, whatever, past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. This is the experience, Vedana, component of existence. And all experience should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not a permanent essence. I use the word permanent essence instead of soul because many of those words like soul or self or ego just have all sorts of strange meanings which people give them. A permanent essence is much closer to how the Buddha, what the Buddha was talking about. Atta is something which was always going to be there. 
just like there's a very similar word it comes from Greek Atman actually it was the Greek word was actually atom the atom in science was formed from the Greek word means indivisible you can't split it up at means no, tama means splitting or something so the atom was that which was a fundamental part of stuff which you cannot split up, it's what makes the world or what makes your body the atom and so if you knew what that word really meant when the uh, New Zealand scientist uh, Rutherford split the atom that was just a fundamental change you know in science the way we look at stuff the fundamental particle of stuff of life in this world was seen to be not fundamental at all you could split it up and you all know from the science you did at school atoms, protons, neutrons that was just the start and then they started splitting those things up and you get you know, subparticle physics and there is no such thing as a fundamental particle they all keep changing so that was John Rutherford, Lord Rutherford he split the atom but 2500 years before him the Buddha split the Atma <laughs> that's how it was, it was uh, pronounced in, uh, in uh, Sanskrit, the Atma in uh, Pali the, uh, yeah, that's right, the, uh, the Atta so anyway even experience you can't take experience as a fundamental entity, a permanent essence any kind of perception whatever, past, future or present one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near any kind this is the perception component of existence all perception should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus this is not mine this is not myself so this is this is not my, mine, this is not me, this I am not. It's not a permanent essence. And the next two get even more controversial. It's an accurate translation, but what it says challenges any kind of will, plus the other mental formations made of will, whatever whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the will component of existence. And will should be seen, so all will should be seen as they really are, with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not this is not a permanent essence where does your will come from? if it's not yours if 
you don't own it, if it's not permanent, where does your will come from? Your will is conditioned. It's a weird thing, but one of the areas of science I was involved with as a university student was psychic research. It was as a phenomena. Why can't we research and find out if this is just trickery or real? And one of the experiments which was done, I've mentioned this to you before, but it really changed a lot of the way I thought it was real. Hypnotism. We had a hypnotist come to give a demonstration in front of all the students. And the hypnotist, and if you're giving a demonstration, you have to tell a few jokes, make a few funny anecdotes or whatever. And he was very funny. And so he would hypnotize some students and they would do stupid things. And we would think it's just entertainment. But the problem, the interesting thing was, we thought it was entertainment, but for many of us it changed the way we looked at life. The entertaining part of it drew you in and made you pay attention and made you change a lot of your ideas. What this hypnotist did, one student he hypnotized quite deeply and he told this student in front of all the other students like me who wasn't hypnotized, when I touch my right earlobe you will stand up and sing in a loud confident voice the British National Anthem, at that time, God Save the Queen. But once I take you out of hypnosis, you won't remember that. But right now, you're going to have to do that when I touch my right earlobe. And he took him out of hypnosis, and he was a good entertainer. Every now and again, he comes so close to touching his earlobe and then take his hand away. He build out the suspense. Is it going to work? And eventually, he touched his right earlobe, and this student stood up you know, in the auditorium and started singing, God save our... in a loud voice. It was the most ridiculous thing to do at that particular time. And myself and my friends and all the other people in the auditorium we were all laughing hysterically at him. And if people laughed like that at me, I'd stop, I'd realize I was doing something wrong, and I'd go red in the face. But he carried on to the very end in a loud voice. It was hysterical. The craziest thing to do. We all knew why, because he'd been hypnotized to do that. But then the most important part of that demonstration was when the hypnotist asked him, why did you do that? And he gave, I forget the reason, but he gave a cogent reason why he sang the British National Anthem at that time. And that's when I got the goosebumps. He really thought he was doing that according to his own free will. He explained it. And to him, he didn't know that he was hypnotized to do that. He couldn't distinguish 
a hypnotic suggestion with the exercise of his own will in a normal fashion. And hopefully, I've made it clear to you how, much thi- how many things do you do with your own free choice? Or how much has been conditioned into you? And that's scary. That goes to your idea of freedom. Why do you do things? And to tell one of my own ridiculous stories, I was not free from uh, being conditioned, hypnotized by TV. Have you ever noticed, I think it's the same these days, commercials on TV. They're absolutely ridiculous. They're, they're pitched at such a low level of intelligence. They're sometimes very funny. And I remember just looking at this commercial once, when I was a young man, about this ordinary-looking young man, not particularly handsome or fit, and walking down the street of some English town and taking out a pipe and putting some tobacco in it, some Bruno tobacco it was called, and as soon as he lit it, the aroma from this tobacco, remember in those days we didn't know the dangers of tobacco, and especially in universities, smoking a pipe was uh, almost like a sign that you were intelligent. Albert Einstein would smoke a pipe, Niels Bohr, all those heroes would smoke pipes. And as soon as he lit the pipe and the aroma, it's totally ridiculous advertisement, the aroma went into this, like, a, a news agent. And this incredibly beautiful girl, like she should be a supermodel, not selling newspapers, she jumped over the counter. She was enchanted by the smell of St. Bruno tobacco and started following this guy, waiting to do his every whim. And then he walked past a greengrocer and another beautiful brunette was enchanted and followed him. And then another shop and another beautiful girl. And the caption was, St. Bruno Tobacco, irresistible to the opposite gender. That's ridiculous. That's gender offensive. You know, I don't know how it would, it wouldn't pass any censors these days. And who would believe in rubbish like that? (laughs) (laughs) I actually bought some some, some Bruno tobacco, put it in the pipe, lit it in one of the streets of Cambridge. The only thing to follow me was a dog. (laughs) (laughs) No beautiful girlfriend appeared from any of the shops. And I was really surprised that I brought into that. How many things do you buy into? Coca-Cola, anything, yeah. What's it? Things go better with Coca-Cola. That's the saying, isn't it? Does this still have that? So you don't need to be to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, because things go better with Coca-Cola, so just give them a Coca-Cola can. People buy these things. You're brainwashed. 
condition? Is it your free will? When I was, uh, was it 19, we had some of the rock festivals. You know, the rock festivals. I never went to um, Woodstock, but there was another festival just in Newport, Rhode Island, which I went to, same year, Isle of Wight Festival. To go to the Isle of Wight Rock Festival, okay, this was in the 60s, 70s, okay, it's my generation. I decided that to be cool, I had to have some green velvet trousers. I didn't always wear brown. <laughs> so to be rebellious, I got some green velvet trousers and wore them to the Isle of Wight Rock Festival. I thought I was going to be different. And I found about 10,000 other kids always also wearing green velvet trousers. <laughs> I've been sucked in by conditioning as my uniform. So this is actually how, ask yourself, what do you actually choose? It is conditioning. It is brainwashing. And I admit it, I brainwash you. Brainwash you into just things like looking at samadhi as being stillness. Brainwash you into doubting some of these things. Brainwash you to be a kind, good person. Brainwash you into understanding past lives. They're real. In other words, your choices a lot of times are based on what inspire you. And I do this and let you know because it turns you into a much better human being. Brainwash people into forgiving each other. It's a beautiful thing to do. But anyway, when that will is understood in such a way, it's, this is how the Buddha's talking. Your will, it's not mine. It's not who you are. All those choices you've made in the past, are you responsible for them? Those great things you did? Why did you come here? Did you choose to come here? That's how it appears, doesn't it? Is that real? Please excuse me, but I remember the first time I gave a talk like this. Uh, he had the old president of the Buddhist Fellowship, Sun Han. Because he asked me one day, can we have a, a deeper talk? Not just the two bad bricks in the wall or open the door of your heart. A really deep dhamma. And I said, okay. And I talked about will. The whole talk was on will. And at the end of the talk, the following morning, he took me for breakfast in Singapore and he said, Ajahn Brahm, never do that again. <laughs> I said, why? You asked for it. He said, he, had, he didn't sleep that night. <laughs> Poor thing. He was worried and worried. He couldn't find fault with the talk, but he didn't like what it meant. <laughs> so it's just like... All right, I'll tell a funny story. There was a monk... He just started out in a new temple in Singapore. And things were difficult. The economy wasn't that good. He was having a lot of trouble paying the bills. And so what he did, he went to another 
more senior monk, and said, my talks are okay, but you know, no one ever gives any donations in a donation box. What should I do? And the senior monk said, simple. Same happened to me, said the senior monk, when I was a young monk starting out in Singapore. What to do is, number one, before you start the talk, make sure all the windows are closed. <laughs> Turn on the air conditioning so it's really hot. Give a boring talk. No jokes. And when you're giving a boring talk in a hot, stuffy room, you will find that many of your audience start to fall asleep. Just before they fall asleep, get out you know, your, those old pendant watches and start swinging the watch. Tell everybody to pay attention, it's good karma. And then, once they are hypnotized, then you make the suggestion that today when you go out, no coins in the donation box, no fives, tens or twenties or fifties, hundred dollar notes minimum. He said, I can't do that, that's that kind of cheating, it's fraud. It's not, it's encouraging good karma. <laughs> so he tried that and it worked. That day his donation box had so much money in it. But he never told the audience. Instead he just waited a few weeks. He can't do it every week, people will suss him out. He waited a few weeks and then he did it again. Closed all the windows, turned up the temperature in the room <laughs> and gave a boring talk, he found that the easiest part. And got out his gold watch, started swinging it, was about to hypnotise them all. He actually, he had hypnotised most of them. And then the watch fell out of his grasp. It fell on the floor and broke and shattered. And automatically, without thinking, he said, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what his audience did. <laughs> it took him weeks to clean up the hall. That was in what I reckon. <laughs> anyway, where are we? Okay, I haven't, haven't finished this at Cracky. <laughs> Any kind of will. It's not mine. This I am not. This is not my permanent essence. It's good to know that because who you speak to, who you associate with, that conditions your will enormously. Who you vote for in elections, what you buy in the shops. The advertising actually works. You understand how it works. And lastly, any kind of consciousness, whatever, this is the fifth of the five components of existence, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. This is the consciousnesses component of existence. And all consciousnesses, the party where this sabba, all of them, 
the six consciousnesses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and mind should be seen as it really is with the correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. The thing you call consciousness doesn't have an owner. You're not in personal possession of it. It's not mine. This I am not. Do you think you are your consciousness that you're listening to me now? This process we call consciousness is listening. It's not a person. This is not a permanent essence. Your consciousness comes and goes. The brilliance of this was because the Buddha separated the consciousnesses. You can see when one consciousness arises and is there, the other consciousnesses are absent. Some years ago I gave what the other monks called the, uh, the fruit salad simile. You have a plate, and on that plate an apple appears. It just comes from nowhere, just as there. When the apple disappears, a coconut comes up. You've got a coconut on your plate. And then a banana comes, and then another coconut. And then uh, a cabbage, no, cauliflower, comes up, and then another coconut. When one appears, the other one disappears. You can't have two different fruits at the same time. And in this simile, the apple represents your eye, seeing, because the apple of the eye. Banana, your nose. Some people have banana noses. <laughs> Cauliflower ears. Coconut is your mind. I forget what was actually physical touch. Doesn't matter. I think I call it pineapple or something. Sorry? My mouth. The mouth. That's yeah. The mouth. That's taste. Durian. <laughs> I smell, yes, we smell, yeah. But anyhow, the simile was just when one is there, the others are gone. What happens to the coconut, the mind, when the other senses are active? It's not a permanent essence. When one thing is there, the others are gone. What about when you're having an operation and you're anesthetized? Where does your mind consciousness go then? Is it stored somewhere? Or is it just gone? The way the Buddha taught, it's just it's gone, it's not there. Non-existence, it comes up when you come out of anesthesia. This is how the Buddha taught. It's confronting. When you first read it like this, it does sometimes cause you sleepless nights or many questions to be asked. I don't mind that because this is actually true. And anyway, I've gone over time as usual. So anyway. Okay. We'll leave it at that for today. But first of all, any question you have, I want to give some time so you can question me now if you need to. 
please don't hesitate to ask a question. Yes. Memories, that's you know, obviously the thoughts, that's part of sankhara. They are part of will. Yes. Perceptions too, it's just how you feel about those memories. It's part of sanya. These actually just go over many of the candles, but mostly will. You choose to have those memories. It's, I'm saying this with honesty because a lot of times I say, no, these things just come up into your mind. I remember when I was meditating and all these thoughts started come up in my mind and I thought, they come from nowhere, I didn't ask for these thoughts. But as my mindfulness increased, yes I did. It was like a sense of boredom or fear, negativity to this present experience. I wanted something to do. In the old days, when I remember just coming home as a school teacher, had a TV and I'd watch anything on the TV to get away from the tiredness I felt after teaching high school kids for, for a day. You go through surfing the internet. Why do you do that? Anything just to take your mind off this moment. If you're meditating, going through your past memories, even rubbish ones which aren't important. Anything to escape from not being at peace with this moment. You actually do choose those thoughts and those memories. That might be scary to you, but it gives you this wonderful opportunity to be free. You can let them go. You can choose to. Because I'm saying that, and many of you respect me, I'm brainwashing you to be free of those past old memories. You can do it. I'm brainwashing you not to have anxiety about the future. Just to say it can be done. That's a powerful teaching. It can be done. And if you respect me, that gives it power. It doesn't work immediately, but over the days, weeks, months, years, it works. It's powerful. Why so many people believe in God? Why? Because a lot of time that's how they have been conditioned. You know, in the old days, if you didn't believe in some sort of supreme being, you know, you'd be considered to be stupid. You'd be um, excluded from society. Sometimes you'd even be burned at a stake or executed. That's why, because that control over society, you know, by a certain number of people. Look, a good example of that, I love telling this story, the uh, reincarnation. That takes away a lot of the power of a god when it's a natural phenomenon. They don't choose who should or who shouldn't be reincarnated, reborn. Which is one of the reasons why for 
uh, 500 years, early Christianity believed in rebirth, reincarnation. It was a truth which was accepted. And where it was stopped was not by the Pope at the time. The Pope was actually in Byzantium at that time. It was was Vigilius. And the year was, it's easy to remember this year, it was 543 AD. Like people in Buddhist country traditionally say the Buddha uh, entered Parinibbana at 543 BC. This was 543 AD. And Vigilius was asked by the emperor at the time, the most powerful man in the world, which was Justinian II, if I get it right, please call a meeting to ban the belief in reincarnation, to make it anathema in the Christian church. The Pope refused. The Emperor put him in prison for a year. And putting him in a prison for a year in uh, Byzantium at that time, that was not as pleasant as even going into jail in Singapore. So in jail for a year, then the Pope, Vigilius, gave in. He called a synod, a meeting of the elders in the Christian church at the time, and they agreed to ban belief in rebirth. That's where it stopped. They gave the idea of a God much more power. Political, not sort of um, uh, religious. It's one of the reasons why Buddhism, the real Buddhism, has often, you know, not been in positions of power. Because the power is a very dangerous position to be in. It's not what Buddha should be doing giving power to each one of you rather than to some supreme being. That's one of the reasons why when the Buddha died, Parinibbana, one of his last pieces of advice before he passed away, when they asked him the obvious question, once you're no longer here, who will lead Buddhism from now on? And the Buddha replied, the Dhamma and the Vinaya will be your teacher from now on. That was actually quite such an amazing, powerful teaching. Not a person, not Ananda or Mahamogalana or Anaruddha, who are all still alive. Just what I've taught, that will be your teacher. Which means we've never really had a leader in Buddhism. You do have a Dalai Lama, but he doesn't have much power. He says that, and it's true. The Sangha has more power than he has. And they have Mahanayakas in Sri Lanka. They have uh, chief monks, Sangharajas in Thailand. But they're only for ceremonials. The only power which we have Sangha has some power, that's a whole group of... The way the Buddha set it up, the Sangha in each monastery 
has authority. So the Sangha in Bodhinyana Monastery, we decide what we do. Of course, we follow the Vinaya, we follow the Vinaya as we understand it. As long as it's not totally against how the Buddha taught it. A good example of that. Can monks eat cheese in the afternoon? And the answer is, in Jhana Grove, yes. In Bodhinyana, no. (laughs) (laughs) So any monks in Bodhinyana who want some cheese, they come over here. (laughs) It's a small thing, but that's actually how we decide things. It's not really that important. But I love it because it shows you just you know, who decides what and why. What's recited by the Sangha? What's recited by the Sangha? The Patimoka, yeah. But cheese, no, it's not recited. That's not in the Patimoka chant. But what it does, you now we have some of these Pali words. We've got to find out what these Pali words mean. And some of it's, it's very hard to find out exactly what it meant. And if it's something you don't really want to have banned, it's amazing just how you can get some interpretations <laughs> <laughs> which fit what you want to do rather than what's there. Go on. Ajahn, we are all practicing the eight precepts. Yes. But why don't you administer it at the beginning of the retreat? Why I don't administer it is because sometimes I've administered those five precepts and eight precepts. People take them and they don't keep them. You've heard this story many times. I was amazed when I went to Thailand after being in Australia for a while, gave the five precepts. People had one finger down. They still chanted all those precepts Parnati Pata, Adinadana, Kamesa Vichachara. They all kept the, they all recited them, but they had one finger down. So what does that mean? I've never seen that before. <laughs> they said they were chanting them, but they're only keeping four today. <laughs> <laughs> and then in other monasteries, <laughs> on the Waysak day, said, how many precepts are you taking today? And they said, we're taking the 13 precepts. Have you heard about the 13 precepts before? It's very logical. They keep the eight precepts in the morning, and after lunch, they keep the five precepts. So eight plus five is 13. <laughs> I think you all know the eight precepts and the five precepts, you know what I'm talking about. It's just human beings. Chanting is not enough. What I want is people to actually keep those as best you can. But there are some people who are sickly. You know, they need some eating medication. They need that by their doctor. They have to have something in the evening. So I tell them, just take a small amount of, like a slice of bread or something. It's for your um, physical health. Fine. But don't go chanting things which you're not going to keep. It becomes a personal thing. And my own history, going to 
like the Thai temple in London. I liked that the best. And I was going there for maybe six months a year. And then they said, oh, it's about time you took the five precepts. My lay name was Peter. About time you took the five precepts, Peter. I said, what are the five precepts? And they said, not killing any living being. I said, I was a vegetarian. I'll never kill any living beings. I haven't broken that precept for a couple of years now. Not stealing, taking what's not given. I don't do that either. You know, even as a young kid, I would, if the bus conductor never asked for the fare, I thought, why should I give it? And even if he doesn't ask, I'd always go up to him and offer it to him. Someone has to pay for the bus. So I never would steal. I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. Committing adultery. Yes, I had a girlfriend at that time, but honestly, one was enough. They were expensive, and I was poor. <laughs> and then lying. You know, every time that someone lied, I think it was just—it's a disrespect to other people. It's much, always much better to tell the truth. I just couldn't lie anymore. And as for alcohol, I didn't mention the last time I took any alcohol was when I was a student. And it was such a ridiculous thing to do, I could never do it again. So I told these monks, I said, I don't need to take it, I'm already keeping it. It was a powerful argument. Same with each one of you. Keep those precepts. Instead of just reciting them. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, cool. Six consciousnesses. What they have, I'm going to quote, I think it was Aristotle. He said that the mind, we call that the, the common consciousness. Because that can take up anything which the other five consciousnesses experience. What you see, hear, smell, taste, touch your mind can know. And your mind has its own area of objects. That's why it's called the common consciousness. So, uh, Aristotle called it the common sense. You know what's coming next. <laughs> All the time since Greek philosophy, we've lost our mind, we've lost our common sense. In Western uh, philosophy, we've only got five senses. Sight, smell, so sight, hearing, smell, taste and touch. The mind is coming into it, but it's hard for it to come in. Even someone like Stephen Hawkins, I get this from my friend Bernard Carr, who was a close friend and associate of Stephen Hawkins, and even he kept on thinking the mind is some emanation from the, the mitochondria in the brain. It was just a, a theory, no proof. You could not accept the independent existence of a mind. As a Buddhist, did she know that's true? 
But anyway, there's always a resistance to the sixth sense. The Greeks would accept it. The Greeks also understood rebirth. But we've lost that in so many years. Common sense and the prominence of the mind. It's one of the reasons why you know, in our Western culture we're very materialistic. The emotional world, some sort of silly emanation of young people. Anyhow, I should finish off now. Any more questions, please put them on a piece of paper for this evening. Now is your tea time. And for me, I've got another little Zoom conference to do. I always say no peace for the wicked. <laughs> and if this is what it's like being good, I would hate to be wicked. Sadu, sadu, sadu.